Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. From Luminary, this is British Villains. I'm sure people wonder why I didn't go down the same path as my dad. I mean, to be honest, school wasn't really my thing. But like I mentioned before, my dad did what he did to make things better. To drag himself out of public housing and welfare. He wanted me and my sisters to get an education and not have to leave school at 14. That said, he also wanted us to be street smart and savvy to whatever con might be waiting for us around the corner. One of his favourite lines is, never kid a kidder, and he wanted to make sure we were the kidders, no matter what path we took. I chose the movie industry, and let me tell you, that line has come in fucking handy many, many times. But back to the story. I think it's time to slowly bring our train back into the station. You'll have a crime family, and within every crime family, there's a head one. The first wave of sentence robbers were getting 30 years. Well, the response to that is probably, well, in that case, I might as well carry a gun and do a a shooting. Most people in jail are fucking idiots. Don't ever think that someone's been to prison, that they're tough, because they're not. The idiots go to prison. You have to imagine the train robbery as a very particular moment in crime. There were plenty of crimes before the train and plenty of crimes after. But to really understand London crime, there's something you need to appreciate about the city itself. Whether it's the 60s, the 70s or last fucking week, throughout history, London has always been a trading city. 
it's what we do. It, it is it is a trading city, and we produce business people and entrepreneurs, and some of them are criminal. Professor Dick Hobbs, criminologist. You know him from previous episodes. One of the things about London and crime is this is where the market is. You know, there's a there's a real market here for anything, for guns, for people, for for drugs, whatever you like. There's a bigger market here than in other parts of the country, which is why you get uh, crims from other parts of the country actually dipping into us. You know, we are, and, and why you get crims from other parts of the world dipping into us, because it's a good market. And if you see it as a market and understand it as a market, then you start to, this, a, a logic starts to emerge. And, and, and then, and only then, can we actually learn how to either tolerate it or deal with it. But to see it as a marketplace and to see these these people as, by and large, not entirely, but by and large, market-driven, um, I think that's the clue, you know. As the market evolves, crime evolves, and therefore villains evolve. For example, according to Professor Hobbs, robbing banks has pretty much disappeared. Bank robbery's gone. I mean, that's one thing that's saying that some of these crimes that we're talking about from the 60s hardly exist anymore. You know, bank robbery, large-scale armed robbery, is finished. It's finished because we're no longer a cash economy. Uh, security in banks, I mean, when I was a kid, going into a bank in the 60s, it was basically just a, a wood-lined room um, with a counter uh, that you jump over and take whatever was behind it. That's gone now. London's banks are a security nightmare for today's criminals. Cameras everywhere, inside banks and on the streets. In America, you're caught on CCTV camera an estimated 75 times a day. Meanwhile, in London, you're snapped an estimated 300 times every 24 hours. The old grab-and-go just isn't an option for any relatively sane thief. It's, it's a difficult thing to get away with, so people don't do it. People have moved on to easier things, but they will always evolve. They will always move on to an easier target. And it's easier to be involved in trading cultures now. So buying illegal goods, drugs, guns, people, whatever, buying it over there and bringing it over here and making a profit... It's even more business-like. You know, it's, it mimics legitimate business. You buy in one place and you sell in another for a profit. You buy cheap and you sell expensive. It's, it's business. The point he's making is that even with all the extra security, this type of trading culture, this very London type of market culture is still going. It just looks different. Which makes the, these kind of uh, spectacular outlaws from um, days gone by uh, seem extraordinary now. They've, they, you know, they've gone. There's still criminals. There's still criminal families around in every in every major city. They're, they're around, but they're not as prominent. They don't dominate a, a territory as they used to. Uh, policing has changed. Um, every everything everything has changed. So what we're talking about here is is much of it is very very historical and specific to that era of the 1960s. Another big change that's taken place, and my dad and his mates will be the first to tell you that it changed the entire landscape of crime, is the drug trade. 
The drug trade starts to come on in the 70s and the 80s and we become, in this country, a centre for recreational drug use. It's one of the few things in this country we do well. You know, we use drugs and plenty of them. And that had an impact in so much as a lot of the old gangsters and a lot of the the old armed robbers who were either in prison, had recently served big prison sentences or were fearful of serving prison sentences, turned their hand towards the this more entrepreneurial activity of buying and selling drugs, of importing drugs from overseas. A lot of villains, a lot of uh, British villains who had made some money went to Spain and they became aware in Spain, in southern Spain, aware of the large amounts of, of, uh, of, of uh, cannabis that was coming from Morocco, um, across the straits from Morocco, and they became kind of interested in drugs that way. According to my dad, this is something that his generation really learned about in prison. That's the funny thing about prison. For a lot of villains, prison's not about rehabilitation. It's about education, lessons on how to improve your skills. So doing a long stint in prison meant you'd be around younger villains coming in and going out. Villains who could teach you a thing or two. Villains who brought fresh information about how things are now operating outside. Found a younger prisoner going in, someone with long hair, with a bit of an education, who had a knowledge about drugs, this thing called drugs. So they started to learn from them as well. And the combination of their semi-residence in southern um, in southern Spain and their residence in uh, British prisons resulted in, in, in a knowledge about the drugs trade and a willingness to get involved in the drugs trade. Previous to that, drugs were regarded generally, not by everybody, but generally the, there was a wariness about the drugs trade amongst these traditional villains who, you know, as we said, are quite conservative in, in a lot of ways. Drugs were a bad thing. Drugs were to do with addicts. Drugs were dirty. They were to do with a different, kind, a wrong kind of person, uh, not like us. Uh, their attitude started to change somewhat. It started to change. And as time went on, as the 70s turned into the 80s, you see a real shift uh, towards drugs. In order to fully examine this shift Dick Hobbs is talking about, I called a man I know who was the walking, breathing embodiment of London crime in the 1980s and 90s. Hi, my name's Tamar Hassan and I am a actor. I first met Tamar Hassan when he was making a movie with Orlando Bloom. He has appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows, including Layer Cake with Daniel Craig and The Double with Richard Gere. People need to understand the Englishman because Englishmen back in the 70s were fucking tough boys, mate, and they still are. Tamar has played his fair share of villains on screen. I mean, he was a Dothraki in Game of Thrones. But it's his portrayal of London villains where he really brings authenticity to the role. Yeah, yeah, we was robbing everyone that moved, mate. We was, so, we had, there was a chocolate factory around the corner, we'd rob it every day. Right. Because back then, there were just warehouse factories, there was no alarms, nothing, no one, no one had an alarm, we'd find a way in and we'd, we'd rob it. This, this started for me at a very young age. Tamma grew up in London in the 1970s and was part of the generation of villains in the shadow of the train. But he was also part of a new generation of kids who had seen their parents live through the rough side of immigration. Well, I'm born, born and bred London, but my, my, um, my descent is Turkish Cypriot. Um, 
which is a small island in the Mediterranean, just next to Turkey, and it was predominantly uh, occupied by Greek Cypriots, and we were kind of the minority. But before the 1973 war, we was just mixed, and it, we were just Cypriots. And then the Brits got involved and fucked it up like they always do, you know, and put us all together. Um, my parents come over here when they was 18. I think my mum was 18, my dad was 21. They were in love at it in Cyprus and couldn't be together because of village wars. It was very different then. Uh, and my mum came here, married a complete vile bastard who was my dad, who I don't know, never met, tried to contact me a few, uh, a few years ago, I don't know, about 27, 28, but he broke my mum's back, left her in hospital. She was in a halfway house. It's kind of a beautiful story because then my dad, who raised me, or I call my dad, he married an Italian woman who was a vile woman. He had a son with her and he went and rescued her, brought her out of the place. That's but, a nice little love story. Love, love, well, a love story. They fucking hate each other now. She can't wait until he's dead. Tamar grew up on what's called a council estate. Some might say they're shitholes. Yeah, it was a council estate. It was a council estate. But, you know, people that say, oh, I grew up in the flats, it was horrible. It was the best fucking time of my life. A council estate is basically public housing. It usually consists of flats stacked on top of each other, often in tower blocks. In my dad's day, the estates were full of families who made up tightly woven communities. As we discussed in earlier episodes, all in all, these weren't terrible places to live. Hardworking folk and neighbours who looked out for each other. But as time moved on, these communities began to break apart. People stopped looking out for each other. Crime increased and inevitably the crime of choice became drug dealing, rendering many of these estates... No-go zones. During the 1980s, tension amongst immigrants and locals peaked, and as Thatcher's Britain took hold, poverty and violence escalated, and riots and stabbings were unfortunately commonplace. For me, it was... I grew up with sort of Jamaicans, Africans. I grew up with those boys, and... I can strongly remember that, that we used to call them yardies back in the day, you know what I mean, yard, yard men. And uh, I can strongly remember seeing people on my estate getting cut to pieces by the Jamaicans. And it was just open. And they used to call it wetting them at the time. And Wetting them? Wetting. They'd, they'd say, well, I'm going to wet him. And what it mean, when they wet, it means that the blood runs down their face and it wets them. And... Uh, and that, that for me was kind of terrifying at the time. I witnessed so many people getting cut. And I think that kind of triggered sort of things in my head where it become normal. It's like kids now, you, you see executions on, 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 on social media and kids are kind of, well, did you see that picture of that geese getting his coat, throat cut? Yeah. I have to agree. Social media has made us all villains now. Well, I'll tell you what it was. I was always fighting at school, and my mum said, you know what, I've got to, I don't know what to do with this kid. So she took me to judo. Judo didn't work, so I just started biting people and right. just being spiteful. And then she eventually put me into boxing when I was about nine. My big brother used to beat me up a lot. He like he used to annihilate me as a kid, and uh, it was horrible, because then you could get away with big brothers used to bully you and used to get through it. And then we got in the ring, and uh, it was in the church hall, and there was no ring. They kind of put the chairs around. And... Uh, Ginger May, God rest his soul. He was very much like Mickey out of Rocky. As that was. He was that sort of character, always got a roll-up in his mouth, but fit as a fiddle. He'd put us in together just to test your 
see what you got about you. And um, my brother was a lot taller than me as well, and, and he put me and my brother in, and I, I found it a bit bizarre, but it, it just, and there was, there was a reason to it after, and he put us in, and we started, and he said, you can't hit the head or below the waist, but you can only just have sort of body shots. And if you hit the head, the other one gets a free shot, not like you've got a standard, but you can pick a shot and do them. And my brother hit me in the face a few times, like he does, because he was a prick at the time. And, uh, and I fucking remember it, and I remember it like it was yesterday, mate. I maybe should have mentioned this before, but if you've got a problem with swearing and graphic descriptions of violence, then this episode is probably not for you. The, the fucking anger came from the root of my feet, right through my body, and I fucking hit him so hard, and I shattered his nose. Like, literally, and to this day, he still can't breathe out of it, right? right? And uh, he went in, he smashed the life out of me. The ginger mate took him out, fucked him up. He said, this game's not for you. He said, you're staying. And then after my 10 fights, you know, I said, what was all that about? He said, anyone do that to their own flesh and blood, mate, he's going to annihilate anyone else. So it was kind of that. So, and then we started boxing. And then what it was, uh, my brother and me, uh, my, the caretaker used to, you know, caretakers on estates, they always used to be bastards, didn't they? And we always just wind them up. I think he, he grabbed my brother and beat him up. So I locked him into the garage. Them old garages that used to, you bang the top of the guy, and he was going into the garage. I pulled the garage down and just battered him with a baseball bat right. and, and it got a little bit messy and then you went prison and go, oh, yeah, yeah. He said prison. If you missed that, we'll get more into that later. And then another time I smashed the, the, germ, uh, the geography teacher for hitting my brother over there with a, with a tea ruler. Right. And I'd done him, well, no, I hit him, hit him over there with an ice cream scoop, cut his head and I'd done him with a tea ruler, like just annihilated him right. in the playground. But I was that kind of a kid then. It was like, I was very bitter and angry and just... But it seems like you were always protecting someone. Always so. protecting. And you're right, Will, you're right. I mean, you know me now, and I've always got that. But I protect people, and I always used to protect the, the, the geeks and, the, and the, the softer people from the bullies. I used to be the bully basher. Because once I started boxing, I could have a hell of a tell. I could fight then, I just weren't strong enough or big enough. Do you know what I mean? I knew I had plenty of art. And I'd go, and I was one of them kids where, you know, you, you, the, big, the big bully would hold his head, and I'd still be trying to hit him. And then he'd just fucking hit me. I'd go on the floor, and I'd get back up and go again. So Tama came of age in 1980s London. You have to understand, London in the 80s was a very different city to the one my dad grew up in, which means the crime was different too. You know, we used to do, we used to rob the, uh, the, the, uh, the parking meters with the drills. You'd get a diamond drill and we worked out that, I mean, people used to go, because I was always... It didn't matter for me, a penny, a pound, right. I'll go and get it because you just add them up. If you're going to make a penny from there and there's a whole street full of pennies, you say to people, oh, I'm robbing parking meters. I think you're robbing one, but you're not. You're doing fucking old boroughs, you know what I mean? It don't matter. You just drill them. You drill them, pull the, pull the, uh, the, uh, the tray out, right. empty it, put it back in. Right. Do you know what I mean? And phone box is the same, but by the time you've done a borough... You're doing all right, do you know what I mean? You'd, we'd nick anything, we'd go to Chewitt's Farm, we'd nick apples, we'd, we would literally nick anything. And you know you've got kids running around there going, oh, look, look at these poor kids, can you give a donate? I was doing that at seven, knocking on people's door. I, I opened a magazine one day, and I see all these pictures of these poor kids' faces, they were like orphans. So something just inside me resonated that I thought, let me go and fucking knock on these people. With, and I, I made this makeshift fucking 
slot thing. It was the worst thing you could ever imagine. I mean, it was fucking horrendous, mate. And I'm sure every time I knocked on them doors, right, these, these people would look and just go, God, it's poor. I think they were just giving it to me cause, just because I was a trier. Because right. I didn't know I was having them, but they just go, here, yeah, kid, there's a penny. There's a, there, yeah, there's something. But it kind of started from there for me. Do you know what I mean? Tamar matured to become a full-blown London villain. But before we get to that, let's do a quick recap on terminology. Gangsters in, Amer- in, a, in America, we got villains over here. Right. I always remember that. Gangsters is an American word, we got villains. Now, to understand a firm, a group of villains, you need to understand what's called the layer cake. I'll give you the layer cake if that's how you want to see it. So you've got, you'll have a crime family and within every crime family, there's a head one. Let's say, Tama, I'm the head of my family, the Hassans. They're not a villainous family, but I'll give you an example. Tama Hassan is Tama's head of his family. And then it sort of filters down. Then you've got the brothers. And the brothers are kind of the generals. So they're kind of there, but there's always one that sort of the older one will always be the, you know, be, yeah. be the sovereign, be the man that says, that says what's what. And then it filters down to their generals, their enforcers. So the enforcers are one side where you've got them collecting debts, then you've got the mules, then you've got the businessmen. And then as time goes on, the sons will then take over. But very rarely you have each brother that has kids that are the same as them. But you'll always get one or two. And nine times out of ten, one or two, the one of them's really good and the other one's a complete menace that will live off the name. And then it just kind of filters down that way and it's always been that way that in America you'd have made men, the Sicilians, it doesn't, we don't make men, it's just there's a family in North London, there's a family in East London, there's a family in South London and a lot of it's very territory-based. One reason family is so important to the layer cake Family is something you can rely on. You can count on a brother, a blood relative. In a way, you just shouldn't trust some random guy off the street. When you're setting it up, you've got your binoculars on, you look, yeah, we're going to do this, the prize is behind the door, this one. That's all exciting for a fucking wannabe and a pretender. But when it comes to the day and people go, I can't do it, I can't do it. What do you mean you can't fucking do it? Well, you've got to do it, mate. We've been on this for a year. What are you doing? Hence why a lot of families will work with their own brothers. Right. Do you see what I'm saying here? In modern British crime, things almost always come down to territory, especially in the large cities. Rather than a whole outfit of the underworld where you get made and you don't get made. It's very territory-based, as you know, Will. It's it's corners, it's areas within London. Let's say, uh, if I could use an example of gangs, Reds, Blues, Cribs, Bloods, Thirteens, they obviously will hold a territory somewhere. So if I can put it down to that, you don't go on there... We call it patch, they call it territory. I'm sure they call it territories in America. I'm not sure what they call it. And if you go on there, and those sort of things from what I can remember was they're selling patches. That's where we do our work. This is where we earn our money. Do not come onto our patch and start selling your shit because we're not having it. And the respect went the other way. If somebody did come on, if somebody did come on and take a liberty with either a family member or comes on and takes whatever level it is, even if you're sort of street selling to write up. And 
I mean, before the drugs even, if you'd come on and, and try and rob a bank on, on our plot or if somebody's casing a job and you'd come and try and case, you just what I'm saying? Yeah. There'd be a fine to pay. If the fine were to be paid, and, and with the old code, it was always done in a gentlemanly way. You'd pay a fine. Right, so let's talk... Unless somebody got killed. Yeah. And then, it go, then you go to war. But I've got to say this. A, a, a lot, a long time ago, a lot of the families worked together. And how that works, when the families are coming through the ranks, they're happy to work with families until they get to a position where they're strong enough to not work for them again, and then that's where the problems happen. Right. Because there's... And I've witnessed that. So, before Tamara arrived in Hollywood, he did have to spend a little time in the slammer. I'm in the cell. I just say funny. So I'm in the cell and this geezer comes in. And he's lying down. He, thank God he, he hasn't seen my name, Tamar Hassan. And he's sitting there. What are you in here for, man? Oh, mate. He said, oh, fucking my bird was fucking this geezer. Blah, and I fucking smashed him and blah. I smashed, I beat him up. And he was really getting aggressive. And I went, oh, that's a shame. Did you know the fella? He went, no, I didn't know him, the Turkish cunt. So I was like, oh. First day, no. I was just thinking, no. And I'm looking at this geezer. And I'm on the top bunk and he's on the bottom. Cut a long story short, he kept on and on and on and on. I just stood up and went, listen, mate, I'm a fucking Turk, turn it in. He went, you are, you cunt, you are. And I fucking ate him. I ate him a lot. I mean, when I when I say ate, I went, all that anger pented up thinking, I'm in here. I ain't going to see no one for fucking 18 months. I'm in here and I've got this hot-ass racist pig screaming about Turks like this. And as I'm hitting him, I'm just saying, did he fuck her good? Did he fuck us? When I come out, I'm going to fuck her. I mean, I lost it. I'll never forget. Next thing, the doors come open, their arms up the back, they drag me out, threw me in the fucking block and then into Fraggle Rock. Fraggle Rock's a name for F-Wing, part of Brixton, one of London's oldest and nastiest prisons. That when they move you, sometimes you can... If you go to a prison and there's there's no space, they'll just put you in places. So it's very rare it happens. But the good thing about them... See, with the ACATs and the murderers, it is so calm. It, because when you're with... And most people in jail are fucking idiots. Don't ever think that oh, someone's been to prison, that they're tough. Because they're not. The idiots go to prison. And that's what you... Because it's full of people for drink driving, junkies, drug addicts, trying to nick a can of beer. And they're just... It's just horrible. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hammer did what I consider a reasonable amount of time in prison for his crimes. And that's another thing that separated the Great Train Robbery from other historic robberies. The insanely harsh prison sentences that the crew received. Twelve men with sentences totaling 307 years. The judge said it would be, quote, positively evil if he showed leniency. Mr. Justice uh, Edmund Davis, the, the guy who sentenced them, and then handed out these absolutely ridiculous sentences. That's Nick Reynolds again, son of the train robber, Bruce Reynolds. You know, 30 years. Um, now, in those days, if you killed someone, you only got 25 years. So basically, <laughs> the government literally shot themselves in the foot there and introduced gun crime from that moment on, because anyone pulling out a major robbery thought, well, I might as well carry a gun. I've got a good chance of getting away. I've got a gun. If I do shoot someone, I'm still going to get five years less. <laughs> and as they said later on... That's my dad, Derek Glass. People now carry guns because if you can shoot someone, you can't give them... It's not America. You can't give them 100 years, which they do over here. So they'll carry guns now. To shoot them, you can only give them 30 years. And that's what they think was happening. So that's what changed after the train... Guns became part of the game, because why not? You were getting 30 years anyway. These iconic crimes and iconic criminals uh, that emerged in the 60s had a, had a real impact about the, the, our, our perception of crime, and also the perception of crime by the criminals themselves. So if you take the train robbery... Professor Dick Hobbs again. The heavy, heavy sentences that were dished out you know, the 30 years, the 22 years for a, for, for a GBH, that, that kind of thing, the 30 years for, for, for a robbery. This raised the, it raised the stakes considerably. It raised the stakes considerably. If you look at the minimal amount of violence that was carried out in the Great Train robbery and the first wave of sentence robbers were getting 30 years, well, the response to that is probably, well, in that case, I might as well carry a gun and do a, a shooting or threaten, or whatever, you know, I might as well do it. I can't get much more than that. You know, 30 years is going to be life for me anyway, so, so that's it. According to Professor Hobbs, another big change since the 60s and 70s is the relationship between coppers and villains. The police also changed in so much as there were various big-time corruption scandals, which didn't do away with, with uh, corruption, but it made, it, it made the relationship between criminals and... Uh, the police less explicit, less obvious. 
So now, it, you know, police officers can't just wander into a pub and start chatting to people as part of their job. That's not allowed. They've got to go on special courses and be wired up and report back to handlers and all kinds of things. It's a more complex uh, policing system we've got, which hasn't done away with corruption. Far from it. But it's changed its nature. So the old bags of cash hidden in a telephone box to bribe a bank copper? Well, that becomes a thing of the past. Policing changed, so criminals had to change too. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what a crime is, a crime is a, cr- a crime is quite literally something against the law. And if the law changes, then the crime changes. With you're in the newspapers today, yet again, they're talking about the possibility of legalising cannabis use. You know, and overnight, if that ever happens, I guess it will happen one day for good or for bad, depending on your opinion. But when that happens, overnight, um. A lot of people who are committing crime will be de- decriminalised. It, it, overnight, it will be gone. It probably creates something else and other opportunities for something else, or there'll be a shift. So, but it will never go away. But it will change, and it will continue to change. I mean, I think the big change that we've gone through is that in the early 1990s, there was an acknowledgement of this thing called organised crime. This is true. Villains worked in firms, but essentially they were independent contractors. They didn't have to align with a gang. It wasn't the way things were done in London. We didn't have it before in this country. Organised crime was, was regarded as being a product of the USA and Italy. So it's something foreign and we don't like things foreign. You know, so that was it. We deal with professional criminals, etc. And I've got a lot of sympathy for this view that if we did away with the organised crime emotive nature, the, the, the terminology organised crime, you talk about professional criminals, then it gets more down to earth and more dealable with. But the organised crime thing carries with it all the connotations of the Godfather and the Mafia and horses' heads in beds and all of this glamour that we've got used to. You know, turn on the television tonight. Look at what's on TV tonight. There will be programmes about organised crime, and it's very glamorous. It's very glamorous. Do away with that term and stick with the professional crime, career criminals. It's a bit more realistic, I think, personally. He's saying that by labelling things organised crime, by glamming it up... By associating something with Al Capone and the Mafia and these scary figures from Hollywood, the justice system could justify harsher punishments. To give you a quick example about how how the term organised crime is used, um, I am acquainted with a guy who was involved in the biggest counterfeiting operation the UK has ever seen. Um he, they were producing uh, £20 notes. Uh, and it was his job to pull a lever on a machine that stamped a silver foil on the £20 notes. This is like 12 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that. So that was his job to stamp that on there. And that's all he did. And he did it, and it was part of this counterfeiting operation. Um, he was arrested, and he found out by the time he joined it, he'd only been doing it for about a month or so, by the time he joined it, the group was already under surveillance. He was arrested. Uh, he was in court. And in court, he was described as being a lieutenant in an organised crime firm. And that carried a lot of weight. And he didn't know what he was talking about. He knew he'd done wrong. He knew he was going to prison. But all he'd done is actually pull a lever on this machine. But he was described as a lieutenant in an organised crime firm because it's emotive. 
It's emotive, and it sure ensured a heavier sentence. And he got a heavier sentence, and he went to prison. So that term is is the term wasn't used in the sixties. If it was used, it was used very sparingly and carefully. It wasn't used until the nineteen nineties, and the imprecision of that term has taken away taken us away from the reality of what crime is really about. Finally, one thing that probably won't change in British crime is the role of violence in crime. For the professional villain, violence isn't just a consequence of something else occurring. It's a resource that makes things occur. But in my dad's day, without guns, it was most often the threat of violence that they used to get their point across. There will always be a place for some visceral violence. You know, for all of this about changes and stuff, you know, you, you see you know, people being robbed for their watches on the street, robbed for their phones on the street. You know, 20 years ago, no one was stealing mobile phones because we didn't have mobile phones. Well, if we did, they were that big anyway. And so, you know, it changes. It will continue to change. But there will always be a room, the room for some violence because it's a resource and some people do it very well. You can't acquire villainy. You just can't. And there's so many pretenders that want to be a villain. They just get excited by villainy. And I fucking hate it. Right. Hence why this fucking movie business saved my life. And I love and respect it. I know it can be hard work sometimes, but I love and respect it. Tama Hassan, ex-London villain, now respected actor on TV and movies. After Tama gets out of prison, before he gets into movies... Tama becomes a debt collector. Now, debt collection means different things in different places. There is truth to that, of course. I mean, each country and each regime, if I can put it, do it differently. The Turks in Turkey, if they put your picture on the wall, you're gone. They don't want the money. That's how ruthless they are. I mean, you don't mess about with the Turks, the mainlanders. Everybody knows that. I mean, you look up Turk in the fucking English Oxford Dictionary, it means warrior nation. They'll open you up like a can of beans. Once that picture goes on the wall, you're fucked. You're fucked. And there's a saying, um, if you get the phone call and they go, keep the money, run for the hills, mate. I don't want to go into how people do it because everybody's different. I've never, I've never ever spoke about this right. in my whole career. What I'm doing well, I appreciate now. It. No, no, just so you know, I've never ever done it. I think it's time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think it's time. It is hard to change your life, to move away from everything you consider normal, even if that's street hustling. But people do straighten up and walk away from the life. Tama has swapped the drama of the streets for the drama of the screen but reveals the path to civvy life was hit by some major wobbles. In the next episode, Tamara explains exactly how a debt gets collected and what type of debt collector he turned out to be. That's next time on British Villains. Back in the day, it was a lot tougher. It was, it was always done around fear, respect, reputation. Men fuck up, mate. That's why women should run the world, mate, because we're fuck ups, mate. And all of a sudden, I'm on every fucking cinema. I'm, I've got five films in the cinema, and I'm rising, I'm doing all these great British films. 
It just happened. It was just weird. It just happened. From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode 12, The New Breed, part two. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.